0: Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed.
1: Welcome to Dressed. The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear.
0: We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Well, Dress listeners, we're a couple weeks into season six. Welcome back. Yes, which is why that we wanted to do an update,
1: a fashion history now update for all of you, because it's been well, probably a few months since we've done one of these casts, and a lot has happened in the
0: intervening period. Yes, and we're going to talk about all of it today. So sit back and relax. Just kidding. We're not. We there's so much to say, but there's really not <laughs> we're enough. We're going to talk about a few things. <laughs> yeah, and you know we love our fashion history nows because it's April and I's chance to check in with one another, see what we've been reading, doing. Um, you know, we don't really talk about it before. So it's always a surprise to one another. Um, And then we just like to share with you what's happening in the world of fashion history today, things that you can also do and participate in. So here we are, you know, and season six already is off to a bang. We, of course, did episodes on Vivian Westwood um, and the Africa Fashion Exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, you can check them out. And then, also, something we just wanted to revisit um, that's new. Obviously, we now have 8 billion in- people in the world. So, our intro has changed. <laughs> <laughs> and our outro's changed a little too. Uh, if you don't always stick around to hear it, we have now added hashtags with the episode number. Um, So we put hashtag dressed and then the episode number at the end of our full-length episodes. So if you want to head on over to Instagram and look in the past for uh, those Instagram photographs that accompany those episodes, we have made it easier.
1: And this was very much a listener request. People would uh, DM us all the time being like, oh, my gosh, you guys have so many Instagram posts. I can't find one for this very specific episode. So how can we fix that? Uh, so we have this is this is our initial solution to this issue. So let's see how it plays out. If anybody has any additional suggestions that they feel like <laughs> might work better, we are open to those.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, it's moving forward with season six. We don't have time to go back through all of our episodes on season five and change the outros for you. Um, but moving forward, this is a new addition. So we hope that that. That satiates your appetite for our dressed Instagram images. So there we go. Well, we've been on hiatus um, and we're
1: back a few weeks now. But during that time, we also got some quite interesting listener email. Do you have anything that you want to talk about?
0: Yeah, it's been a while since we did listener email. We used to do it um, quite a lot on our fashion history now. So maybe we'll get back to doing that moving forward because we do receive so many emails from you guys. And sorry if we we do our best to answer each and every one of you. So if you slipped through the cracks, we apologize, but um, we do our best.
1: It is not intentional in any
0: way, shape or Absolutely form. Absolutely not. Um, but if you do get a response, it is us. So you can you can know that. Um, but I received this really lovely email over the hiatus from Richard Nylon, April. And he wrote to me and he said, hi there, Cassidy. I trust this finds you well. Uh, they, he wanted to reach out about a couple different things. One, he sent me an article from La from 1924 um, showing Maison Lewis costumes from Easton Getz Tour of America. Oh. And that was off the heels of our re-aired fashion, and the showgirl episode, So that was really lovely. Thank you, Richard. And then he responded to our gift-giving episode um, with a little bit of fashion history of his own. April, of course, so lovingly gifted me, what did you gift me? Gasoline or the suggestion of using gasoline to clean my gloves. It was a dry cleaning fluid. Oh, right. Uh, (laughs) And you're supposed to mix their formula in
1: with gasoline. To create the dry cleaning solution. And then also rinse your garments in gasoline afterwards.
0: (laughs) It was a very thoughtful gift. Um, And Richard wrote me to say, as to gasoline being used in the fashion trade, I have a pamphlet from 1912 entitled, Make Your Own Plumes, The Art of Ostrich Plume, Making Together with Facts About Cleaning and Dyeing and Many Suggestions for Millinery, Information Worth $50 to Any Woman end quote, in which gasoline and benzine are recommended in the cleaning and dyeing of ostrich plumes, and the user is told to avoid flame while performing the operations. Thusly, quote, you are cautioned not to go near fire or unprotected light while using the liquids needed in this process, as they are explosive.
1: (laughs) Well, it's like whether you're you're using them during the process or what about when you're wearing them? That's what I was like most concerned about, (laughs) what do you smell like? It has to be like so bad.
0: I know. And that was one of our questions, right? Is like, it's one thing for them to actually suggest these things in print, but it would take a lot more digging on our part to see if there's any primary sources where they talk about actually using this process, which we could dive into. And, th- and then he's so sweet. He signed it, yours in dressing, Richard. <laughs> so I love that. Thank you, Richard. Thank
1: you. Yes. I'd also like to send a big thank you to Anne Catherine Worth for reaching out to us recently on our DMs and Instagram. And sending me some photos or sending us some photos of her grandparents. Well. If that last name sounds familiar to any of our listeners, yes. Worth, you can trace that all the way back to our very first episode, because Anne Catherine is actually the great, 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 great granddaughter of Charles Frederick Worth. Wow. The father of Haute Couture. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and she's, cool. also, uh, she's also a member of the Cartier family, because the Worth family and the Cartier family married and are married at one point. But um, Anne Catherine sent us some really, really lovely photographs of her parents, Maurice and Jacqueline Worth, um, and when they were overseeing a fashion show that was happening at the Couture House in the late 1930s, early 1940s. Date's a little bit unclear, but, um, but, but thank you so much for sharing that with us. And it was such a cool interaction to, like, know that people in the families of these super important
0: figures in fashion history actually listen to our show. (laughs) I know, that was so cool. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for reaching out to us and sending us photographs. How amazing. I'll have to check it out.
1: Yes. Oh, she did say that we could repost those photographs on Instagram. So maybe I'll do that in our stories too.
0: Okay. Amazing. Amazing. So what is next? Well, April, I happen to know you are going to be partying like it's 1789 in France at (laughs) Versailles this summer when we will be there. Um, You're going to, as we've talked about previously on this show, you're going to be going to one of their, it's not the Fête Galante, but what's it called?
1: It's the Grand Mass Ball at Versailles and it's in the garden. And I already have my ticket.
0: And you're gonna have to tell us all about getting dressed for that, obviously, in a future <laughs> episode. Um, because costumes are required. And I actually found the perfect footwear for you. I am going to share my screen with you and see if you've seen these um because they are absolutely amazing. I have
1: a sneaky suspicion what you're gonna show me because it might have been on my list of things to
0: talk about <laughs> you too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Like I that was Cass and I don't talk about like what we're going to talk about when we do these. Um, And this was actually also on my list because, you guys, the AI, the artificial intelligence, uh, it got me. It got me good.
0: It got me good, too. Are you kidding me? I started researching these shoes. I was like, where can I buy these? Because we're looking at a Nike and Balmain collaboration, which are these, like, high-top, basically, like, floral, sculptural gilded shoes that are the most beautiful creations you've ever seen.
1: Yeah, they're they incredibly gorgeous. I don't even know where to begin describing these high tops because, like, the motifs that are kind of raised from the surface of them, they, they include scrolls and florals and, like, delicate birds all in this sort of 18th century rococo style they almost look like they're porcelain or maybe uh think about um a very extravagantly decorated wedding cake that's what i was gonna say yeah look like on the outside of the sneakers and i was like i need these immediately like the ai <laughs> got me good and i started like going down the rabbit hole of, like where can i buy these where can i buy these how much are these like and yeah nope they're ai and as far as I can tell, they are by an Instagram AI artist, I think, whose name is Rick Dick.
0: I couldn't trace it back any underscore, further. Than underscore, underscore. That. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what I found too. So I think we're just going to have to make our own. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to attempt to do this um, and see how it goes. So I'll let you know. I mean, they're just jaw-droppingly beautiful. And of course, there's been so much controversy around AI. I think it's really interesting, right? Because if it's by an artist, there's all this controversy about around AI just like going in and quote-unquote stealing art from all of these different places, right? And then producing quote-unquote art. So is that what he did? Or did he just like provide the AI, right, with like... Images of Balmain's history and then images of Nike's history and then the AI AI just produced it. I have no idea.
1: I don't think there's any information on that, but I found this concept really, really interesting. And I actually texted my friend Gabe like as soon as I saw it, I was like, "Okay, so you know, I wonder if these sort of AI collaborations, instead of being like theft by finding on the internet, like is there a way for brands to test market?" new styles before putting them into production because this would be like a super practical and positive application of AI tech in this intersection with the design industry so I, I do think there are some interesting possibilities there of like launch it first see how many people are into that idea and then make it later
0: well yeah and i think if as long as the artist or designer agrees to it right as long as nike and balman were like okay let's we're freely giving you our intellectual property to do this AI experiment with. I think that's probably different than what was happening on all these apps where it was just like everyone was putting their faces into all of these AI-created universes, right, over the last couple months. Um, Yeah. But those AI-created universes were just like straight up stealing artists' singular aesthetic identities, so...
1: What I'm saying is specifically is, is this a smart idea for the fashion brands themselves? Yes,
0: exactly. To
1: test market designs using AI um, in this sphere. So
0: I don't know, maybe there's, you know. In the meantime, I'm going to knock off, (laughs) I'm going to try to knock off these things and I'll post pictures if I succeed.
1: Okay, well, sign me up for a pair of a size nine. Thanks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We'll see. Um, In all my free time, uh, I think it'd be really, really fun. Well, that's fun that we both had that to talk about. I mean, because trust listeners, you'll see, they're just absolutely stunningly beautiful. So let's do that. So next I have an article to read that I would like to suggest. It's on celluloid prison rings, and it's by Megan Jenkins for the Fashion and Race Database.
1: I actually had this mark, too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to let you go. (laughs) Well, it's interesting, April. I don't know if this happened to you, but um, obviously on Instagram, I follow Karen Augusta Auctions, and I follow Megan Jenkins, and I follow the Fashion and Race database. And all within the same day, they all posted about—obviously, Karen Augusta Auctions is not connected to the article, but they posted some prison celluloid prison rings that they were selling in their upcoming auction— And then it almost came back to back on my feed with Megan's article on celluloid prison rings. And I don't know about you, but I had never seen anything like this.
1: No, I actually flagged it for a future episode. But that was my flag. So it wasn't necessarily for um, our fashion history now today. It was more like, oh, I need to talk to Megan more about this.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so cool. I mean, she makes it a very, it's a very personal um, essay in a way because it is about she collected a ring and she wanted to know more about it. And so she kind of takes us into her research process looking into what these rings were because she writes that as a lover of Victorian mourning jewelry, I initially thought I was purchasing a 19th century mourning piece. It's extremely rare to see Black people in portrait jewelry. So it's a Black ring that has a portrait of an African-American woman in it. Um, And I've never seen anything like this at all. So she says she knew she had to buy it. um, And then it turns out she unraveled this whole history of celluloid prison rings, which are so-called because they were often fashioned by incarcerated individuals using scrap celluloid from state-provided materials like toothbrush, handles, combs, or pins. And it's unclear if it was a for-profit industry. She might have talked about that, but um, she talks about it actually more in terms of, like, it being a folk art. So a way for prisoners to, or incarcerated individuals, I should say, to express themselves. And celluloid was apparently something that was really malleable and something that they could melt down and refashion into jewelry. So it's super interesting. And they weren't just this kind of um, prisoner folk art. They're also mail-order rings that you could buy. Um, And apparently you would... Mail a photograph of your loved one with a fee and postage, and you would receive back this portrait ring.
1: Yeah. So it was a ring, obviously, like a cameo of sorts with someone's photograph in it. And it was all entirely made up of celluloid. So,
0: yeah. And if you want some yourself, you can head on over to Karen Augusta Auctions because their live auctions, Wonders for Your Wardrobe, is on February 15th. Ah.
1: Well, on that same note, and um, I'm I'm not going to talk about this extensively because we are hoping to do a much longer um, episode on this. But also fascinating in the auction world is Andre Leon Talley's small selection. I think it's like something like seventy items or so mm-hmm. um, is going up for sale at Christie's on February fifteenth. That it is an auction that you have to actually register to bid. So just know that's happening. Um, we are hoping to cover it on the show, um, but it won't be until after the auction is already completed that we're able to do that. So if you're interested in purchasing something potentially, you can head over to the Christie's website. Uh, you can see what the auction lots are and you can see the estimated Prices, which I'm sure many of them are gonna be blown out of the water for sure.
0: Oh, I absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh we do hope to um, be chatting. I think we're gonna be chatting with Christy's here um in the next week or two about that auction. So stay tuned. Fabulous.
0: For that. And April, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that uh Karen Augusta auction because I as far as I can tell, this one is exclusively online. It's called their what I this their annual wonders for your wardrobe. Um, And they have so many amazing pieces from around the world and throughout fashion history. They have a really amazing selection. And a couple, they have two Poiré oil paintings. What? Which I thought you would find interesting. Yeah. And their landscapes, and I think, I mean, my guess is that they're from the World War II era, as we know he was Mm. in, I think, um, the French countryside during World War II. He was infirmed, um, and he was painting uh, and so I, I'm curious. They didn't really have a date attached, but I thought you would find that interesting. That there is not one, but two part oil paintings.
1: Head right over there right after we get done recording this episode and take a gander.
0: Yeah, and then they also have an unworn op art paper dress, which of course you talked about last season, um, the history of paper dresses, and they have a w- unworn Scott Paper Company dress. So the dress that started it all. I launched the paper dress trend. Uh, They have one of those up for sale. And then another thing that I just love, I love books and I love books with like fashion plates or like fabric swatches. And so they have over 200 stenciled cotton samples of Fortuny designs. Whoa. Yeah, I guess there was a New York branch of Fortuny and their most samples are, they have a paper tag with the design name and the price per yard. And it's like jaw-droppingly beautiful.
1: How are they stored? Are they just individual samples? Are they like mounted in a sample book?
0: They're mounted in a book, yeah. So there's like, you can kind of flip through. And that's the type of fashion ephemera that I love to collect. But you too can collect these things, dress listeners, if you want. Um, There's also like a Madam Gray dress that I'm sure is going to sell for thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, They just have a really, really fun assortment this, this year. So if you're interested in checking that auction out, you can head on over to... Augusta-Auction.com for your chance to get your hands on some of these special, special pieces.
1: Yes. And just so everybody knows, um, they specialize in fashion and fashion ephemera specifically. So they are a very niche auction house and they know what's up and they always have really super amazing things. And I've worked with them many times in the past over the years and they're really wonderful to work with. So Cass, have you heard about the Tom Brown lawsuit?
0: I have heard about the Tom Brown
1: lawsuit. Yes. Well, listeners, (laughs) if you haven't, Tom Brown actually just very, very recently last week or so won a lawsuit that was brought against him by Adidas. And I really hadn't heard too, too much about this, but apparently the lawsuit was filed in 2021, so two or so-ish years ago. And... Adidas was basically suing Tom Brown, the American fashion brand, over his use of horizontal stripes. (laughs) Right? A tale as old as fashion time, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, uh, Adidas was claiming that because Tom Brown and his fashion lines in the past has repeatedly used this motif of stripes that run horizontally, like, stacked on top of each other and it's it's not even really that specific because sometimes he has used two stripes stacked on top of each other sometimes it's three most oftentimes um as one article notes it's actually four adidas was claiming that it violated their trademark of three stripes horizontally (laughs) What was Tom Brown's attorney's response to this lawsuit? Adidas does not own stripes, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is brilliant and just, like, straight to the point.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it brings up a really interesting question in terms of the larger debates in the history of fashion where you've seen things like the red shoe, right, the red-heeled mm-hmm. shoe, and I can't remember, I think Louboutin sued YSL saying that they owned, you know, kind of the intellectual property to have red bottom lacquered shoes. But as you and I know, of course, April, Louis the 14th, anyone, hello, 18th century. So it goes back a really long time and there's a lot of, a lot of history beyond just, you know, contemporary high fashion. So it's interesting.
1: Okay. I'm going to commit, I'm going to say season six addressed, Ariel, Elia. Please, yes. come. we're going to do, <laughs> finally, this episode on uh, copyright in the fashion industry and lawsuits. And it, it, it really is quite, quite fascinating. So I should text Ariel here very shortly. Um, but just a little bit more about this lawsuit before we kind of, like, dip into a new topic. Uh, basically, Adidas was trying to uh, sue Tom Brown, the company, for $8 million. Basically, they were saying like, oh, if you had gotten our approval to do this, there would have been, we would have received like $800,000 in licensing fees. But because you use Stripes, you also made $8 million. So um, we're going to try to recoup (laughs) all of this money that we think that you made using Stripes. And it was really quite fascinating. And I think one of the cruxes of the argument of, of why they actually lost was, of course, the lawyers for Tom Brown made this argument that the two brands aren't competitors within the fashion market because of their price points. Um, and apparently at one point in the trial, they, like, brought out a, a pair of, like, $50 Adidas sweatpants and then also, that had stripes on them. And then also a pair by Tom Brown that also had stripes on them. They were not reflective of, they weren't, it wasn't design piracy. It was just sweatpants that happened to feature stripes. Adidas's pair was $50. Tom Brown's pair was almost $800. Oh so my they're goodness. like, yeah, this is not, we're not, this is not marketplace infringement. This is. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But it just, it's. This speaks to larger debates, as we know. I mean, in America, especially, um, you know, fashion is one of those places where designers can't actually legally patent their designs, too. So it's like those larger questions, too, right? About like you can't actually sue someone for counterfeiting you. Well, you can, as as Adidas has, has shown us. I think us, you, I think you can. Win.
1: I think you can patent something, but you can't copyright it. Those are two oh. different
0: things. So. Yeah. We'll get Arielle on here and maybe she'll clarify yeah. something things for <laughs> us. Super, super fascinating. Well, good. I'm glad Tom won because I did think that was a little ridiculous. Um, Adidas, come on.
1: Yeah. Well, I would like to talk about a little bit of a loss and a little bit of a win, if I might first, because I am from, of course, New York State, which we have now apparently inflicted George Santos into Congress on the rest of the nation. <laughs> But if there is any win out of this whole thing, it's the fact that as long as he's there, we get to have Bo and Yang on Saturday Night Live doing his brand new <laughs> <laughs> George Santos um, impersonations, which are like, I, if we have to have this guy in office, this is the one thing that is going to make it great. And this is actually something that r- Robin Gavon, one of our very favorite fashion journalists and past-dressed guest, wrote about this past week. Uh, She wrote an article about the lying congressman and his crewnecks, which is (laughs) just pretty great. Are you all (gasps) up to date on the George Santos uh, scandal cast?
0: I am. And actually, I had flagged an article not by Robin Gavon, but by Vanessa Friedman of the New York Times, who talks about the costuming of George Santos. I didn't actually prepare to talk about it today, but we can certainly have a conversation around it um, because it's really, really fascinating. I mean, it's offensive, right, in so many ways that this man could lie, lie, lie basically about his entire resume, get elected, and then once all this comes out, he's still in Congress. But I think it's super interesting that kind of these fashion-minded journalists are picking up on, like, the visual language um, that he embodies in telling this and maintaining this lie, right? So, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about Robin. I can speak to what Vanessa wrote about, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm just going to go to—I I took out, like, some brief— quotes from Robin's article, which I thought were really interesting and just kind of like sum it up because it is actually a rather lengthy article. But um, she says, the breadth, pettiness, and audacity of Santos's lies may well set him apart from his colleagues, but so do his sweaters. They're all a part of a look, khakis, conservative ties, and a navy blazer. And the spectacles, real or fake. In a congressional gathering full of staid suits and yawn-inducing ties, Santos manages to stand out in an ensemble that is equally bland, yet strikingly different. His look is a nod to prep school attire and all the privilege that it implies. Santos is the man in the crewneck sweater and sport jacket, entitled, privileged. He is a man for this age, one in which facts are fungible and the truth is opaque and mediocrity can take a person far. Santos is everything and he is nothing at all. And I was like, this is why I love Robin because she is so good. She doesn't pull any punches, but she also does it like so eloquently (laughs) all at the same time. So thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you, Robin. And actually, Vanessa takes a little bit of a more of a different take on it. She talks about the costuming and, like, the different lives and ways he's, like, dressed himself to perform these different identities. So she puts it in the context of, like, the talented Mr. Ripley and, you know, Frank Abagnale from Catch Me If You Can, you know, who is a real-life person who convinced the world he was a pilot, a doctor— We also, of course, have Anna Delvey, the fake heiress, (laughs) um, who did an amazing job also through her like-fashioned self, Elizabeth Holmes, black turtleneck. And then she talks about how throughout history, the greatest grifters have understood that dressing the part is half the game. And so she talks about uh, that in terms of George Santos, who, you know, all of these images of him coming out as a drag queen that he just continues to deny, 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 even though there's all this photographic evidence. Um, but, you know, he's presented himself as a financier, but then there's like the reality versus the facade, have you? So, yeah, super interesting, right? yep, well, I mean fashion
1: is 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 inherently about identity, right? That is one of the cores that we talk on undress. And it's like when you trust that identity that is conveyed via the power of fashion, doesn't mean that it's true. That's why fashion is considered glamorous. The real definition of the term glamour is is trickery
0: or fake or an illusion. Yes, um, and escapism. (laughs) And uh, Friedman wrote that Santos clearly understood that no matter the character you're playing, what you wear tells the story. And so he dressed up his story of embodying the American dream and the fashion vernacular of archetypes. So we'll put links to both of these articles, dress listeners, if you want to learn more. But as April just spoke to, I mean, it's really about whether you're, you know, agree with George Santos or not, you know, if even if you don't want this to be political in any ways, look at how dress influences so many different aspects of our lives and makes its way into these conversations in ways you, you never even thought um, you cared about. So, yep. I love how we just have like the same things. I mean, maybe it's how it comes up in our, <laughs> uh, in our world and in our newsletters, um, but it's interesting how you and I always have similar things to talk about.
1: Yeah, well, we have been doing this together for 10 years, so maybe we do. (laughs) Sure, brain, just a smidge.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries?
0: So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass,
1: as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone.
0: I have something, a suggestion of what to buy, dress listeners. I don't know, April, have you heard of these Four Days bags? No,
1: what is this?
0: Four Days is a company um, that is very into sustainability and recycling responsibly, shopping and dressing responsibly. And they have this amazing program called the Take Back Bag. And as they say on their website, it's here to start a a circular revolution and end fashion waste. So here's what you do. You order a take back bag. You then clean out your closet and you send us your filled bag and you earn $20 in closet cash because they do have garments you can buy, um, clothing and accessories you can buy on their website. But what I particularly love, April, is I don't know if you're like me, but I hate throwing out anything. I just, because of what we do and how conscious we are about the environment, et cetera, I hate Even when my, like, old underwear or my old socks, like, I keep it because I'm like, oh, I'll I'll make a pillow and I'll stuff it or something. So I've had, I have, like, bins and bins of, like, old socks, old shirts that have holes in them. And so this was, like, the perfect solution for me. You stick it all in a bag. They don't care if it's ripped, torn, stained, anything. And then you send it back to them in this giant bag. And then they work with recycling partners to keep these things out of landfills. They ensure that 100% of the clothing that you send gets sorted and graded, and 95% of it stays out of landfills. So I just think it's a really, really cool concept. For the four days bags, 90% is upcycled into new fiber, and then 10% of that is, like, reincarnated and resold. So it's just so, so cool. That's super awesome. Yeah. Downcycling, too, into, like, rags, insulation, and shoddy. I'm not sure what shoddy is, but... Anyways, like, I've been waiting for a brand to come around and do this, and now it's, like, right at our fingertips, so I'm just very excited about it.
1: Yeah, and also, too, please, I just want to encourage listeners to check to see if your local municipality also has clothing recycle programs, because I live in New York, and um, actually they are oftentimes at many of our local farmer's markets. Um, Maybe not every single day, but, like, once a week, and you can just take any of your textile waste Or um, things and take them there that you know that are not going to necessarily be picked up by a reseller or by charity which that's a whole thing in and of itself that we've talked about on the show many many times a lot of us who are donating our clothing to charity thinking that we are we're doing good in the world well um, (laughs) a lot of that doesn't end up where you think it is so if you do know that something is 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 irreparably damaged or stained or has reached its life's end, um, you know, these recycling options are probably your best bet.
0: Very cool. I do not know if I have that here, so I'll have to check that out and see. And if you don't, you can get your four days bag and uh, know that you're doing good.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, Cass. We, I think, saved the piece de la resistance for the end. This past week or so has, of course, been... Paris Couture Week, spring 2023. Yes, which we
0: love to talk about. <laughs> Where would you like to be kids? Where would I like to begin? Well, actually, okay, so I mean, I I checked out some of these shows. Um it's we've always loved getting together and talking about haute couture. We don't typically do it with the regular fashion seasons, but haute couture always gives us like, you know, that incredible beauty, fantasy and glamour as you just referenced that we love, love, love um in fashion. And April, I just wanted to share something with our listeners that I've been meaning to for a while and it's the Yves Saint Laurent Introduction to Palmer White's Scaparelli book. Have you ever read this?
1: Yes, I have. But I would have to go back and look specifically to know what the reference you're making it is. But I
0: have read that book. So one of our past dress guests, Mark Higgins, um, shared this with me because it's so beautiful. I'm not going to read the entire thing. It's, it's kind of long, but it's so beautifully written by Yves Saint Laurent about this iconic designer. Um, and it really just kind of sets the stage for like the magic, artistry, innovation of her work. And then maybe a good segue into what we're going to talk about with Daniel Roseberry's recent collection. So I'm just going to read you some snippets um, because it's so awesome. So he writes, She slapped Paris, she smacked it. She tortured it. She bewitched it, and it fell madly in love with her. She disembarked, enigmatic, spectral, trying to slip unnoticed through the cloud with her trunks full of Episcopal silks, cardinal scarlets, torador jackets, rolls of pom-pom pattern edging, candy bags stuffed with gold nuggets and silver sequins, ottomans and papal moray as sharp as scimitars, oriental dressing gowns, army officer Brandenburgs and braids, Commedia dell'arte accessories, a harlequin costume, sprays of stiff, fierce vulture feathers, frolicking like circus horse plumes, an entire world of strange, disquieting, and fascinating things. So that's just like the intro. And then he just goes on to write about how she trampled down everything that was commonplace, And that she was, um, she cheated and tricked by inventing. She was incomparable. There is no equivalent to be found. Her imagination knew no bounds. So I just wanted to share that because I just think it's so wonderful. And those are just snippets um, from Yves Saint Laurent. And then he closes with saying, when she died, she closed her eyes. She alone could have done so. She would not have allowed anyone else. So, uh, yeah. Just a little tidbit from Mr. Yves Saint Laurent about one of, as I said, the most iconic and visionary designers of all time. And, you know, now her house is headed by Daniel. And I think you and I can agree, one of the most exciting shows um, and brands to watch, collection after collection.
1: I don't know if I want to go, I don't know if I'm going to agree with you on this one. Um, (laughs) Arresting, absolutely. Exciting, perhaps, depending on what level you want to like investigate that further. But I will agree with Yves Saint Laurent, um, particularly on this collection, that it does feel tortured.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, not there, this collection is actually very controversial.
1: Yes. Yeah, and and, and I, uh, before any of the controversy came out, like, I had already seen some things, and I I saw the animal headdresses, of course, first, because that's what popped up immediately all over the press, Um, and I was like, oh, no, no, no. I was like, are they trying to Balenciaga themselves right now? Because, <laughs> you have to tell people what the animal headdresses are. <laughs> okay. So, basically, the spring-summer 2023 uh, Scaparelli collection is a multi-piece collection, but three of the pieces in the collection um, feature basically life-size, hyper-realistic renditions of a snow leopard, a lion and a she-wolf, and they are incorporated into the garments. Uh, they are actually not real at all. They are—they are—they uh, were commissioned. From an Israeli artist whose name is Ami Zarang, who runs a company called Animal Replicas that creates custom, usually like silk and wool reproductions that are hyper realistic of animals. So the, but no aren't animals, actual animals, yes, right? No animals were <laughs> harmed in these dresses, but I still saw where the trajectory of this was going as immediately <laughs> in terms of the press, and so that was why my thoughts went to Balenciaga. I was like, "Is this a stunt?" Is this like a media stunt <laughs> purely for press? So that those were my initial thoughts. I would like to hear yours before we go further.
0: I mean, the very first th- thing I saw was Kylie Jenner. Um, you know, this popped up on my Instagram feed. Kylie Jenner wore one of the dresses from the show, um, Walking the Red Carpet. So that was like the preview before you even got into the show. You saw Kylie Jenner and she had the li- giant lion's head. And it was kind of disarming, right? You're kind of like... This makes me uncomfortable.
1: That's what I was saying. It's like arresting. You're like, stop on yeah. their tracks. But like, and also it's like, what is the precedent of like letting a celebrity wear one of the garments that's just going to be debuted on the runway to the show? Is that a thing? Is this a new thing that we're doing now?
0: I mean, I think we could t- have a whole episode about the influence of influencers on the fashion industry because I think having Kim or Chloe or... Kylie connected to your brand is going to bring you, you know, they half a billion followers on Instagram. I think they probably have a billion put together. So it's like that's bringing unprecedented press to your brand. Um, granted, how many people can actually afford to buy Scaparelli? So I don't know. I mean, I think bringing Balenciaga into the conversation is interesting because it's like these are conversations that are moving fashion beyond um, you know, this obviously consumer product into the world of pop culture. This immediate impact value
1: mm-hmm. is, is what straight up what it is. I'm going to stop yes, exactly. talking about Balenciaga on the podcast
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's an interesting, I think at least with Daniel and, you know, you, you and I have always had mixed feelings. I think he, moving forward over the last couple of years, I think he's done really incredible things. And maybe from that kind of very beginning when he started, um, I really, really am a huge fan of his. But I think um, when you are working in the realm of kind of realm of surrealism and kind of pushing the boundaries, maybe you're not always successful. And I, I think a lot of people were upset by this because, but it's really interesting. We could talk about this People are really upset because of the visual parallel with like trophy hunting, right? And so it's like big came hunting, right? We people actually do kill these animals and put their heads on their walls. But I'm all, the other part of me is like that's why it's so, like, like you said, arresting or like kind of jarring when you see it. But at the same time, it's also like no animals were actually killed in this. So this was very much like an artistic statement. And we should say, The collection was based on Dante's Inferno, which is, you know, that famous 14th century poem. And, you know, Roseberry was quoted as saying, Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso, one cannot exist without the other. It is a reminder there's no such thing as heaven without hell. There's no joy without sorrow. There is no ecstasy of creation without the torture of doubt. And I still don't really know how that translates to the animal. Were there animals in Dante's Inferno? There have yeah. have been.
1: So they're representing very specific figures of pride, avarice, and I think greed is the other one. So those are very specific references. But like, okay, great. I'm all for that. I love some nature imagery and fashion. And I do want to talk about that more in the context of another collection that we're going to talk about here shortly. But my issue with... A lot of things in that collection actually had to do with proportion, right? Because if he wanted to use the animal motifs, he could have very easily incorporated, you know, the lion head smaller into the shoulder of a dress or was coming, like, off of her shoulder or or actually placed them in placements where they were active and in movement. And, and so it didn't feel like they were actual taxidermy. Yes, that, yes, yes. That's where my that's where my issue is. So like it didn't have to go there. And also, <laughs> I'm not really so sure visually how those three pieces connect back to the rest of the collection. I do understand, of course, like we just talked about that yeah, the Inferno was the inspiration behind it, but there is a massive disconnect in in, in my mind between those pieces and everything else that was shown. So
0: Yeah, it's it wasn't as seamless as he's done in the past for sure. Like, where it's, like, in, integrated and there's, like, this really clear, like, narrative trajectory, maybe visually. I think it was very, very jarring. So, we're in agreement maybe there, but that was
1: his point. Maybe he was trying to Balenciaga himself.
0: <laughs> I think there's definitely an <laughs> argument to be made there for sure. Something that I thought was really interesting, too, that a lot of people are talking about is Doja Cat. Uh, who spent five hours sitting for celebrity makeup artist Pat McGrath um, and was covered in 30,000 Swarovski crystals applied to their head, face, chest, and arms. And so just, and was completely red, right? Red from head to toe um, as also another celebrity who um, kind of entered the chat before the actual... (laughs) before the actual fashion show started. But Doja Cat was definitely one of the celebrities to watch because I don't know if you saw what she wore to the Victor and Rolf show, for instance, but I just had so much fun watching all of her fashion. And she had her, like, eyebrows painted out for that collection, and she had eyelashes on um, as a mustache and on her eyebrows, which I just thought was really fun and playful.
1: Lots of fashion stunting at this year's spring summer 2023 couture shows, including by Victor and Rolf at their own show. Yes. (laughs) Should we talk about
0: that next? Yes. I always, I mean, I'm a huge, Victor and Rolf is probably my favorite, favorite Haute couture brand um, out of everyone just because they like went away from ready to wear just so they could focus on the art of fashion. And that is what they do every single time. So I'm, as you know, a huge, a huge Victor and Rolf fan. I don't know if you want to introduce the collection, but.
1: Sure. I mean, I actually, somebody that had worked in the fashion industry that I recently met asked me who were some of my favorite designers and they were actually on my list because I was like, I love how they do f- serious fashion without taking it too seriously. Um, and that's, this collection is a supreme example of that. If you've seen it, you know, you've seen it. Uh, if you haven't, let us just give you a little brief introduction. It, it, it's almost like the models are interacting with paper dolls, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But but oftentimes, the ensembles are sculptural constructions. So it's a little bit of a mix of, like, straight-up, traditional, really incredibly beautifully done um, 1950s-inspired party dresses with lots of tulle and lots of ruffles and these kind of, like, pale candy colors um, interspersed with these Other versions of it where the models are wearing dresses upside down, they're wearing them sideways. Sometimes the dresses, they're not even wearing the dress. They're wearing like a really, like a corset-esque dress where the ball gown is attached to it and preceding them down the runway. They are really feats of construction, I have to say.
0: Yeah, and supposedly, I I don't know where I read it now, but um, a collection that is based on or is entitled Late Stage Capitalism? (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, they're all they're always making commentary too in like a playful playful way. Um and they told, I think Roth told Vogue that there's a commentary on the internet, a disconnect between what we see and the physicality of the product, the information that comes at us, going from making banana cake to so many people being killed in Ukraine. It's, what kind of world are we living in? And his answer to that is, it's absurd, right? So it's kind of like, if you're going to make a commentary on late stage capitalism, this is how ridiculous it is, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was Sarah Scuturo, um, conservator extraordinaire, who, um, of course, is a past dress guest. She commented on how um, impressed she was by the invisible mounts. Like, who created these invisible mounts for these dresses? Because it's, they're absolutely exceptional.
1: Yeah. And, and one of the, my notes that I'm looking at on this collection literally
0: says exquisite control. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, w- uh, I read somewhere too that the model, you know, dress listeners, you're going to have to look this up, but there's a model who literally, did you mention this April comes down with the ball gown upside down and she's encased in it. So she can't, see or it doesn't look like she can see. It's like a literally a ball gown that's upside down. And uh, she's completely covered from the chest up. And apparently there was instructions being read to her as she walked down the runway. Um, So I don't know if she could see or not, Um, but yeah, this is definitely, if you're going to, if you looked, I bet you, if you just like Googled Couture Week, this would be like one of the first images that came up because it's just so crazy and fun. (laughs) And I
1: I think it's, I think it's interesting here to point out that Couture Week is oftentimes about artifice entirely. Um, But I think one of the things that I love so much about this show is it is about the intersection of artifice and also art because of how well the pieces are crafted and how well they're done. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know. It's fascinating. Um, I also do want to point out, too, that some people have already pointed out that this is not the first time this kind of concept-ish has been done, that uh, Olivier Taskins did um, a similar kind of, like, paper dress doll divorce from the actual model collection in spring 2002 and then also Gaultier did one Mm -hmm. something akin to this in 2003 so it is something that has been bandied about in the fashion world before this idea of paper dolls but I, I this is the, I think they're all unique in and of themselves.
0: So yeah, know. because these are like actual three dimensional garments that are like attached to the to the model. It, they're pretty extraordinary. And then it also is worth mentioning that there are also just like some more traditional drop dead gorgeous ball gowns.
1: Absolutely um,
0: featured in this. Collection. Those are the sales
1: but, pieces.
0: Yes. Um. In April, I'm sure you noticed this, but another meme that's been going around is the model who has the skirt, um, attached to her, like the the skirt is like parallel to the floor and it's like going through the model. And so there's like a black hole in her stomach and everyone's comparing it to Death Becomes Her, um, which I know (laughs) is a favorite movie you and I share um, because it it literally looks like there's a hole in her stomach. So anyways, job well done, Victor and Rolf. You always know how to um, capture our imaginations.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, so I have one last designer I would like to talk about, if we may, and it's something that I touched back on earlier when I was talking about the use of, like, nature imagery in um, these particular collections. Have you had the chance to see the Rahul Mishra?
0: Oh, yeah, always a favorite.
1: Yeah, and I think that we have actually talked about him on the podcast before, when we've covered some of the couture collections, but um, he and his brand, he's the first India designer to ever be invited to show as a guest at Haute Couture Week. And this collection that he did this time is probably one of my favorites that I've ever seen him do. Um, and let let me just preface all of this with saying that if you don't like embroidery, If you don't like sequining, if you don't like embellishment, this probably is not going to be the collection (laughs) for you because this is entirely what his brand is about. Well, not entirely, but like when he's at his best, he is flexing his muscles in this realm. And aside from all of this, his couture house is actually working in the vein of sustainability and ethics, um, ethical design. Um, the, the three pillars of the house are environment, employment, and empowerment. Um, and they really look at luxury through this lens, as I say, on their website of participation, not just consumption. So to create these stunning handmade creations that he makes, he employs more than a thousand artisans in India cast. This is really amazing. And I think I want to invite him to come on the show if he would be so willing to talk to us about what is maybe possibly the first kind of like blueprint for a sustainable couture house.
0: Yeah. And I mean, drop, drop dead gorgeous. Eric and I talked about his fall oak couture collection um, on an episode last season. I mean, just jaw-droppingly beautiful. And as you said, I mean, I think celebrating the Arts and craftsmanship is so of India is so intrinsic to what he does at that brand, and you know it it's it moves beyond that narrative that luxury is exclusive to Europe, right? I mean, India has this incredibly long history of creating the most exquisite of garments using sophisticated techniques. So, um, this particular collection, we should say, was inspired by the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And Rahul told Vogue, obviously, the cosmos is very, very vast. And the first thing that came to mind was going interstellar. But what I wanted to do is look down below and look at the seas. And then he quoted an ancient saying that goes, what is outside is inside you. But yeah, such, such a beautiful collection. And that would be amazing if Rahul would come on the show. Let's work on that.
1: I'm going to work on it. Um, I mean, I just (laughs) loved it. I actually cried at the last two looks of the show. Like, that's how emotional I got. Um, there's all these motifs that are just like, oh, oh, by the way, I also read something by one of the other members of the team there saying that the average amount of time that it took to create one, one of these garments, is 3,000 human hours. And so they are completely encrusted in this embroidery that, like Cass has said, is like referencing uh, sea motifs and the jungle and clouds and leaves. Um, and also Rahul himself said that he was referencing microsystems within larger systems of the cosmos and how time flows like water. And um, some of my friends who know me quite well know that I'm a little bit obsessed with this concept of, of time and time relativity so maybe that's something that i inherently picked up on this collection <laughs> before i even knew that he said that so yeah it's, it's really beautiful check it out um and i actually watched a lot of these shows on the shamba syndicale's own website cast oh, they're nice. putting up videos of all the couture collections on on their own website now so listeners you can look them up too
0: yeah, we'll have to link you there to check it out. Um, and you can make your own opinions on whether you agree with us or not. But as you know, dress listeners, this is one of our favorite pastimes on the show. is talking about our favorite um collections and not just, you know, any favorite collections, but the ones that really speak to kind of these broader narratives and themes that we explore on the show, uh, like sustainability, ethics, and the art um, and artifice of fashion. So does that do it for us today,
1: April? I think it does, because I think this episode ran a little bit longer than we thought it was going to. (laughs) Uh, So that does do it for us today, Dress (laughs) Sisters. Remember, we love hearing from you, so if you would like to email us, you can do so at dress at iartmedia.com. You can also DM us on our Instagram, which is Dress underscore podcast, where you find images and reels accompanying each week's episodes.
0: And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Paykram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dress coming your way on Tuesday. <music> dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.